Welcome back, everyone, to the Chaos Ball Podcast. Thanks for tapping in. It is April 23rd, 2023, a.k.a. the year of Mike Ford, as many intellectuals are saying. Uh, and the Mariners are 10-12. The Seattle Mariners are 10 wins, 12 losses to start the year. As we start to kind of wind down April, what's been going on? Uh, first of all, I'd like to say... It's weird to have a homestand of Brewers and then Cardinals. Like, that's wacky. Uh, I can't remember the last time we had either of those teams play in Seattle. And the fact that it was back-to-back is is pretty awesome, honestly. Like, the new schedule is pretty sweet, I feel like. Uh, I like the prospect of playing, like, every other team in the league. Uh, just seeing, like, new faces and new teams playing against the Mariners is really cool. Uh, it's just so wacky to me that, and like the next week we go to the Phillies. <laughs> so, so interesting, but I honestly really like it. I like the new schedule. Uh, just, I like, I would, I would love to go find it. Maybe I'll do that this week. The last time the Mariners played back to back NL central opponents, um, really really interesting and things went okay in this in this homestand I guess it was largely a decently successful homestand but I will get into Mariner stuff later after I get the evergreen content out of the way here but first I have some random thoughts I would like to spit at all of you random thought number one uh you know when uh, they do steal a base at, at games, I'm assuming most ballparks do this. I remember this as a kid going to Mariners games, always wanting to do this. Uh, but having a kid run from, like, I don't know, center field or something to second base, steal the base, run back in a certain amount of time, and they keep the base and all that. I know that's still happening. Uh, are they using the new bases or are they using the old bases for this? Because the old bases, uh, I feel like the it was still kind of big for some of these kids to like grip and run with. And the new bases are three inches bigger in on all sides. So are we going to see some more kids fumble in the bag here in this, uh, in this game? And I'm, I'm just wondering if they're still using those small bases just for these, these little kids, you know, or if the whole time they were using smaller bases already for these kids to steal, like what is the base that they're stealing? Is it a game base or is it a base made for stealing, made for a kid yanking it out of the ground easily, right? I don't know. Maybe I should ask someone. Maybe I should figure that out. That is, That was a random thought that popped into my head this week that I wanted to mention because now I'm just, now I'm questioning the whole institution of stealing a base. Maybe the bases were fake the whole time. I don't know. I don't know. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. But if a kid, if a kid like dropped the base... I feel like they usually do an amount of time, but they give like the kids so much time to where they can basically not fail. Like if, if a kid trips on his way to getting the base, grabs this new bigger base that MLB is imposed on everyone. Right. And let's say he drops the base on the way back. He, he loses more valuable seconds off the clock. He, he can't quite get a grip on the base very well. He's running slower than usual. He or she, and they they get back to the finish line and they're out of time, like they don't make it back before time. 
do they still get to win or keep the base? Or are we are we being real strict about this? Where if the time timer goes off, it's like, sorry, the person with the mic on the field is like, ooh, sorry, uh, you're going to have to go put the base back, actually. Uh, you can't take that. You lost. Sorry. Um, that is the type of stuff that pops into my head on a daily basis when I'm watching baseball. So let you uh, let you all noodle on that. And maybe I'll find out if the base has always been smaller. And I'm actually now really wondering that. Uh, another random thought. I think Matt Brash should learn a splitter uh, just because. I just think he should learn a splitter because he imagine him with a splitter. It wouldn't even need to be good. He wouldn't ever need to throw it in a game. I more just want to see it. I just want to see if he can learn a splitter and how nasty it would be. Uh, that's it for that thought as well. I just think he should learn a splitter and throw it. And so much to take a video of it. Uh, that's a second random thought. And then third, uh, this isn't a random thought. This is something I saw the other day. And uh, if you aren't familiar on, on the platform YouTube, they're having these uh, YouTube shorts. Uh, it's, you know, Instagram real TikTok type deal, right? And I scroll through these shorts from time to time when I'm bored. I came across one the other day and I could not not talk about this somewhere so I'm going to talk about it here and it's from an account called at elite Korea the caption of this is ranking five MLB shortstops hashtag players hashtag top hashtag God first hashtag Jesus hashtag Himothy hashtag love hashtag positivity and hashtag MLB right off the bat I'm assuming this is an 11 to a 10 to 13 year old, 10 to 14 year old, maybe, um, which is mostly who makes like Instagram baseball content. And this is reminding me of Instagram baseball content, um, the lowest tier of baseball content. Mainly, I mean, it's not really a knock. Like, it, it's mainly 13 year olds on there creating content exclusively for Instagram. Like, it's not their fault that they don't know ball, they're 13. But this, this reel, I wish I could just play it, honestly. If this podcast had a video format, maybe I'd play it. But, unfortunately, I record in a small closet. And that is almost impossible to do a video format at this point in, uh, in my podcasting hobby life. But this, I'm going to watch it right now, live. And I've seen this before, but so they ranking it. So again, the caption it says ranking five MLB shortstops, not ranking the five best, not ranking like the five coolest, five most good looking, five worst, just ranking five MLB shortstops. At number five, we have Tim Anderson. At number four, we have Bobby Witt Jr. At number three, we have Javi Baez. At number two, we have Bo Bichette. And at number one, we have Carlos Correa from at Elite Correa. Carlos Correa being number one on this list. Not surprising. Tim Anderson, Bobby Witt Jr., Javi Baez, and then Bo Bichette and Carlos Correa. I mean, those top two, sure. I'll give those to you. Did you just choose? Did this person choose five at random and rank them? Like, that is so. I'm fascinated by this. I just, I've watched this a lot and I'm still trying to make sense of it. It's like Javi Baez at three on any list. Shortstop, player, whatever at this point is just bad. I don't I don't know. I wish you all could watch this. 
that is another thing I wanted to share. I'm done talking about this, but now um, if anyone asks me who the five best shortstops are, I'll send them this, and this should tell them all they need to know. So that's it for the random thoughts segment of this episode. Let's get into the to what really matters, uh, the Baseball Reference Player of the Week. The Baseball Reference Player of the Week this week for the week of April 23rd, 2023. Hashtag the year of Mike Ford. Uh, this week's Baseball Reference Player of the Week is, surprisingly, another player from the late 1800s. And his name, well, he was born Charles Frederick Koenig. But no one knows him as that. Everyone knows him as Silver King. I'll say it again. Silver King. Now, Silver King had a great career, actually. Um, he played a decade in the MLB from 1886 to 1897. He put up 50.4 career war in that time with a career 3.18 ERA. He had six saves as well, even though he was a starter, predominantly a starter. And he, he got those saves. You'd think like potentially, right, he's a starter earlier in his career and then he's a closer later in his career, which is not generally how it works in the 1880s or 90s. Uh, but no, he got no more than one save a season. So he got six saves, one in 87, one in 89, one in 91, one in 93, and then, yeah, no, that's it. Those are his saves. It's just very spread out over his career, randomly getting saves. Uh, but Silver King, there's honestly, there's not much info on Silver King, really. Uh, he played for the Kansas City Cowboys, uh, St. Louis Browns, Chicago Pirates, the Pittsburgh Pirates then, New York Giants, Cincinnati Reds, Washington Senators. He really bounced around. Uh, the first part of his name, the Silver, Silver King, uh, was a reference to the color of his hair, obviously, Silver. And then the latter part was the translation of his German surname. So Silver King, the nickname, makes a lot of sense. Had silver hair, and I guess the German surname of Koenig is King. Uh, learning that information is interesting. If you can, look him up, go to his Wikipedia page, look at the baseball card that they have as his picture uh, it's an 1888 baseball card of Silver King on the St. Louis Browns Old Judge Cigarette Factory Goodwin & Co. baseball card. A classic, classic make and model. Uh, but more on Silver King. Hard to find a lot of info on this fella, but he apparently had a very unusual windup and had really large hands. And so, well, I guess he didn't, he had, didn't have an unusual lineup. He didn't have a windup. Uh, he was one of the first pitchers ever to employ a sidearm delivery, uh, and he really used that to his advantage. He was a great pitcher. Uh, his best season was on the St. Louis Browns in 1888, I would say. It's probably his best season. Uh, he pitched 584.2 innings that season in 66 games, uh, went 45-20 and 20 with a 1.63 ERA, and uh, led the league in most pitching categories, whip, FIP, ERA+, plus, strikeouts per walk, uh, innings, shutouts, complete games, led the league in all of those, and ERA. So what an absolute dog he was on the mound. No, but that's Silver King. Not much else to him. More just very fun nickname. Uh, classic 18, late 1800s baseball player. In 10 seasons... He threw over 3,000 innings. 
which is insane. And to give you some context, through 3,180 innings in his 10 years in the major leagues, and then think of, let's say, Justin Verlander, who has had 17 years in the big leagues now. He's on year 18, and he's thrown... 17 less innings than Silver King. Justin Verlander's at 3,163. So Justin Verlander's played almost double the amount of time as Silver King did and thrown roughly the same amount of innings. Uh, 1880s baseball was awesome, man. I wish I could go back and watch watch baseball back then. That was real ball. That was real ball back in the pre-modern era. It was just the wild, wild west in baseball. I could have went back there and thrown sidearm and probably had a 1.23 ERA too, like Silver King if I really tried. Uh, but that's the baseball reference point of the week this week. Uh, one more thing before we really start talking about the Seattle Mariners here is the chaos moment of the week. There were some fun ones this week. I mean, I wrote a little bit about Scherzer's ejection on my Substack. Go check that out. Very short piece. Very quick read. Um, Nick Ahmed hit a double off the ground uh, to which Vladimir Guerrero Senior replied on Twitter and said, nah, it's not very hard because he is known to hit pitches uh, off the ground like cricket. And uh, But those aren't the chaos moments of the week. The chaos moment of the week is Drew Smiley. And if you didn't see this, you must go watch what happened. Uh, but Drew Smiley, uh, we saw him dice up the Mariners a little bit last week. And maybe Drew Smiley's having a career resurgence. He was perfect through seven innings. And what happens? He needed he needs six outs to complete a perfect game. Drew Smiley. And there's a dribbler down the third baseline. It's very playable for Drew Smiley. And if Drew Smiley gets this ball, comes up and fires to first, still might not have gotten the runner, but definitely a playable baseball for a pitcher. Luckily, the catcher... Jan Gomes is a huge Felix Hernandez fan and decided to run out. And right when Drew Smiley was picking up the ball, decided to tackle him to the ground. Just straight up, just just jump on his back and bring him to the grass to end his perfect game and give, uh, give one in the hit column for the opponents, right? Uh, if you haven't seen that, I implore you, uh, go look that up because it's objectively... One of the funnier things I've seen this season, Jan Gomes, like, actually, I I would say figuratively tackled, but really did tackle him to the ground, presumably on accident, but I'm going to keep up this narrative that Jan Gomes loves Felix Hernandez and just wanted the the perfecto to, to end so that Felix's would stay intact as the last one to ever happen. So another perfect bid, perfect game bid ends late in the game, cementing Felix Hernandez, like I said, Still, the last one to throw one. I said it before and I'll say it again. I hope he is the last one ever to throw a perfect game. MLB should just cancel perfect games. Uh, if someone throws nine innings of no base runners, no errors, no no walks, no anything, um, just give them a, a nice pat on the back and say, good job, pal. You did, you did real good today. And they'd be like, I threw a perfect game. I'm not going in the record books. Like, no, sorry. Felix Hernandez was the last one to do it. The last one to do it. Officially the last one to do it. So those are the rules. Sorry about it. But with that being said, with the chaos moment of the week out of the way, let's talk a little Mariners. Let's talk a little Mariners 
baseball, shall we? The Mariners, as I said, are 10 and 12 right now. Currently, I'm recording this right after the loss to the Cardinals. Uh, they had an opportunity to sweep them today. They decided to not do that. They decided to uh, give Jack Flaherty his best start of the season, despite looking very shaky uh, in his first few outings. I think it's great for most pitchers in the league. Like if they're coming to Seattle and they're having a down year, they can at least pick themselves up against uh, the Mariners at home and have a good start to really like re reignite their season. So any pitchers looking to do that are welcome to T-Mobile Park. And uh, the Mariners would love to to help you kind of get your season back on the rails, you know. But let's 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 just examine what happened here. Uh, so I recorded on Sunday after they swept the Rockies, and I believe I said it'll be interesting to see what the record is come May first because they're playing the Brewers and the Cardinals and Phillies and Blue Jays all. Quite good baseball teams, all with playoff expectations, just like the Mariners. Uh, and they promptly get swept by the Brewers at home and then almost sweep the Cardinals. Uh, they take two or three from the Cardinals, which is is fine. They haven't been playing quite as well, the Cardinals, that that is. But still a very good team. It's, it's not like they're playing the Rockies at home again or anything. They're pretty close games. They're very close games. But they end up, they end up losing today and not completing the sweep. Then they have an off day tomorrow, so they are 10 and 12 almost at the end of April. I'll still be very intrigued to do, see what they do against the Phillies and the Blue Jays going into next month, and then we can really examine the month of April and see what went well, what did not go well. Uh, but right now, things are going okay. I really do think this is, like, there's nothing to really super overreact to yet in this season. Like, the only real thing to potentially take into May and be like, well, maybe this is representative of what his whole year is going to be is potentially Colton Wong, but even still, like he, he had three hits today. They weren't especially hard hits, uh, but sometimes it just takes getting on the board and then maybe he'll go on a little, little hot streak to end the month. And I still would put more faith in Colton Wong figuring it out and hitting better, obviously, than some of the other struggling hitters in this lineup because of, you know track record, veteran, all that. Uh, so not especially ready to give up on Colton Long yet, and he's probably been the the biggest surprise. I would even say bigger than Jared Kelnick's breakout just because we, what we saw in spring was at least like, well, okay, now we can say the spring training wasn't a total fluke yet. Yet, right? But Colton Long, this is like... Yeah, he's probably the biggest surprise, I guess, to start the year, unfortunately. But otherwise, like, things are going about as well as expected. Uh, I mean, we're three weeks into the season, so, again, there's, you know, there's so much baseball has to be played. But it's like the surprisingly lack, the surprising lack of production from Wong so far has kind of been zeroed out by the surprise greatness of Kelnick. I, I think they have kind of evened each other out. And so I'm just going to call that a wash on both their parts right now. Wong's awfulness and Kelnick's greatness. Uh, we're just going to say that evens out to zero, wins above replacement, even though that's not true. But I'm just going to say it does. Uh, otherwise, I think what we've seen from this team this year that wins games is what we expected. Uh, getting solid pitching, 
top half of the lineup, plating some runs, enough runs to hand it over to the bullpen in a close game to close it out. Like the first two games of this Cardinal series, they won 5-2, they won 5-4. They get a decent lead with some runs and good production from the top half of the order. They get a decent solid, they get a decent or two solid outing from their starting pitcher who gives them a chance to win, which this pitching staff is pretty good at generally giving the offense a chance to to win the game. They they're pretty good at doing that. And then handing it off to the bullpen and having them them close it out. That is the formula for this team. We know they like to win games like that. They don't necessarily blow opponents out. They don't also really get blown out too often. Uh, they play close games. They win close games because of their solid fundamentals on defense and their great bullpen and pitching and enough production from the good part of their lineup, which is very good. The good part of the lineup, the top half, has been great to start the year. And ultimately, again, not that surprising when you look at the names on this list, you know. So it's not like the formula for winning is any different uh, so far. They haven't showed me anything this year that's like, okay, they're going to be winning games in a commanding way. No, they're going to win games like they have the past couple of years. Just ideally, on paper, the floor is a little higher for this team than the past couple of years. But otherwise, like, yeah, it's been kind of as expected. I mean, they sit at 10-12. and 12, uh, but 10 and 12 after starting the year with series against you go, um, you play the Guardians, you play the Angels, you play the Guardians again, you play the Cubs, the Rockies, the Brewers, and then the Cardinals. All of those teams, except for like the Rockies, are the only really like bad team on the schedule, and the Mariners swept them. Otherwise, they have played like all of those teams. Are contenders. All those teams are playoff contenders. The Guardians are good. The Angels. It's early in the year and they've been playing good ball. Uh, and they're you know they're not a bad team. Uh, the Guardians again. Like the Cubs have looked great this year. Uh, the Brewers have looked like one of the best teams in baseball this year, if not the best team. The Cardinals have looked a little lackluster, but it's also the Cardinals and their offense is still really good despite their pitching struggles. And they're. 10 and 12, the Mariners are. Uh, that's not necessarily bad against all of these good teams. Uh, that The team's always kind of played above their expected win total the past couple of years, and they've done it by winning those close games. And so far this year, they're 3-5 and five in one-run games and 0-4 and in extra innings games. So it's not really like they've underperformed at a macro level. It's more the results haven't gone their way to start the year at a micro level. And that's kind of what you get teetering on the line of being a very good extra innings or one-run game team, you know? Like, what else do we know is true about this team, right? The DH spot, it's been really bad. The top half of the lineup has been very solid. Uh, the bottom half has been really bad. The, which goes hand in hand with the DH struggles. The fifth starter spot has been kind of the weak spot. I mean, Flexen hasn't looked great. Marco's looked better. Uh, but also now, like with an injury to one of the top four starters, you have to start like Tommy Malone, who again was good, but like Darren McCowan, Mc... McCacken, I think, I think it's McCacken or something. Darren McCacken. Like, those type of guys, but, like, it was the Marco versus Flexen debate in the fifth starter, and it's, like, whoever comes out the victor there is still 
could be better, but not uh, the worst fifth starter, but that's still a known weakness of the team. Still not quite as big of a weakness as the bottom of the lineup, but that's expected. Uh, and, like, the, the overall pitching staff has been good. It's it's very early to evaluate relievers. Um, the only really one I'm somewhat worried about, besides Festa, who was sent down already, was Diego Castillo. He just hasn't looked quite as sharp. And that is kind of what he looked like in September slash October last year. And has looked similar heading into this season. But I'm not ready to, you know, give up. Like, it, it's hard to evaluate relievers, especially early in the year. You really have to do the eye test. And he's looked, like, fine. But he's looked closer to what I saw in September last year than to what he's done, let's say, from 2018 on. But I'm still not super worried. And then, like, Munoz and Ray being hurt just kind of stinks. But really, honestly, there's no need to panic. Like, they're 10-12 and against those good teams. Things haven't gone their way in close games, and they've played a little sloppy. They've picked it up the past week they've just been playing better baseball uh but really it's like there's no need to panic but there's still very valid criticisms and question marks to continue like pushing and questioning the offseason decisions that were made by john stanton that were made by jerry depoto and justin hollander in the front office it's all of them combined it's not just one of them the lack of depth has hurt the team Particularly in those close games, the lack of depth has really hurt them because you have Tommy LaStella, Cooper Hummel, AJ Pollock coming up in big spots at the plate, or ha- or like a lack of speed on the base pass late in the game because your lack of pinch runners because uh, Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty have been hurt to start the year, and that lack of depth has really hurt the team. And if you are knowingly reliant on the health of Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty. And to, to like be the best team you can be and choose to not strengthen the depth further. It's just not intelligent team building. Like, I don't want to hear money, this money, that it's simply not intelligent team building. Again, if you're relying on Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty, if they're hurt, the team takes a dip. They should not affect how this team plays from a day to day. And that's not a knock on both of those guys. They're both very solid players, both I think, very useful utility pieces. But the depth goes beyond those guys. And it's beyond those guys that the depth falls off completely. It's just... And you obviously can't rely on health. You can't rely on health. And it's just irresponsible to come into this year with no known DH. And after Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty, it's just a bunch of slop. Like, you're at this point, you're hoping... Taylor Trammell comes up healthy and puts it together more than we've seen. You're maybe betting big on Cade Marlowe, who has looked good to start the year. He just came back from injury. He's looked solid in his first couple games, but you can't, you know, be fully reliant on a guy who hasn't played in the bigs to be a key depth piece this year, especially since he's not a top prospect. And I love Cade Marlowe. I'm a big fan, but it's... They needed to build out the team a little bit with more MLB known talent. All of this is not new. All of this we knew going into the year. So my point here is, despite the start of the season being a little lackluster, this is roughly what they were expected to play like. They weren't like they're not. They were projected in the 90s wins, but 
if you remember last season, like what were they? What was their record in in May before they went on like the fourteen game win streak? I mean, they were like ten games below five hundred in the month of May, if I remember correctly. And right now, the season has started a little bit better than last year. And if they can hit that stride middle of the season going into the the last part of the season, then I don't see anything to really worry about right now. Uh, cold and long, though, man. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until May. I'm going to wait till May 1st, and then I'm going to dive in. Because, boy, if he even had, like, if he even had... MLB average production to start the year. Imagine what the offense would look like. And the offense is already good. The offense is, despite the the slow start, the offense has been good. I mean, you have Kelnick, who has 190 OPS plus, has been otherworldly. Ty France has a 133 OPS plus. Teoscar, 118. Julio, 115. Cal, 111. JP, 109. Eugenio, 106. That's six hitters above 100 OPS plus. I think, was it Daniel Kramer or someone tweeted it the other night? They lead the league right now in hitters with uh, OPS plus over 100, which is league average. So, theoretically, three weeks into the season, they have six guys hitting above average at the plate. And that just tells you how bad the bottom of the lineup's been. Because Colton Long, like, he is, he, he is like a zero OPS plus. He's been so bad. Um, and even league league average production from him would make the bottom of the lineup worries less worrisome because if he if if one through seven is league average to above average, you can't you can definitely live with the bottom two of your lineup being way below league average. It's not an ideal scenario still, especially if those guys are providing marginal utility everywhere else on the field. Like I'll. I'll give Martin Maldonado as an example. He is perfectly fine hitting ninth in that lineup, being bad at the plate because he's offers so much both off the field and on the field defensively. And right now, we're not really relying on the bottom half to be amazing defensively because it's a DH spot. It's it's Colton Wong at second base who's been fine defensively. It's It's whatever. It's your backup catcher. It's your backup outfielder, corner outfielder. We're needing them to hit, and they're not doing it. But but, the top six of the lineup being this good to start the year is very encouraging. So we'll take it where we can. We'll take the wins where we can. Uh, and I'm not – I will say nothing more about Colton Wong. Maybe next week. Maybe next week. Does it even reach April or May next week? Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't. I will be writing hopefully a May or April in review – little Substack article delving into some more stats and stuff, but, you know, I'm still, I'm not pressing the panic button on Wong yet. I'm pushing it out till, till May, and then we'll see. And then we'll pick it back up, panic button-wise. Uh, but Jared Kelnick, man, he, he's considered, 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 man, I can't speak today. He has continued his great start at the plate. Uh, hit another home run today. Past two days, he's taken low strikes and just muscled them to left center really really impressive at the plate in 68 plate appearances in april last year he was hitting 140 219 291 with three home runs nine walks 36 strikeouts in 77 plate appearances in april so far this year 
He's hitting 319, 377, 667 with six home runs, 13 RBIs, seven walks, and 20 strikeouts. Just crazy improvement at the plate. And I tweeted it uh, during the game today after his home run. One, first of all, the, the two home runs further express, the two opposite field home runs he hit against the Cardinals this series, further express just how strong this dude is to take balls that easily out to left center and put them over the fence. Uh, but more importantly, so I tweeted it during the game today, that he he's kind of reminding me of Bo Bichette in a way. Uh, and there's other hitters like this. Bo Bichette is just the first one that comes to mind who... His swing is his swing. You know, Bo Bichette's swing is awesome. Love Bo Bichette's swing. He doesn't really change his swing to conform to what pitch is thrown. Whereas I would, as I would, you know, say, Ty France kind of does this. You you see Ty France sometimes in his hitting, his pitch recognition is so good and his bat-to-ball skills are so good. He can recognize, see, he can sit fastball, recognize that maybe it's a breaking ball mid-at-bat, adjust, put a decent swing on the ball, and get like a solid base hit out of it. That's Ty France. There's a lot of hitters like that, too, who are so talented. They can kind of change their approach or change their swing because their bat-to-ball skills, their pitch recognition is so good. Uh, Bo Bichette, not like that. Bo Bichette swings, he trusts his swing, and he puts good wood on the ball. He is a spray hitter. He's To start the year this year, he's hitting more baseballs the other way than pulling them. And Jared Kelnick has been similar and has ta- and talked about this a little bit. So having a consistent swing path is so important. And he's talked about this, basically saying, like, as long as my approach is the same, the timing, the leg kick is the same, every swing, the swing path, and you're catching the ball on the same swing plane every time you hit the ball. So it doesn't matter where the ball is on the plate. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do with the ball. Jared Kelnick has said, and Bo Bichette is such a good example of this, is as long as you trust your swing, you trust your mechanics, you have the same swing plane every time when you're hitting the ball, the ball will jump off the bat. It doesn't matter like where the ball is. So you take it the other way, it's because you put a good swing on it. You you pull the ball really well, it's because you could put a good swing on it. He like those two those two home runs are such a good example because like the one today, it was a slider down and in. Slider down and in, very similar pitch to the pitch he pulled completely moonshot home run in Chicago to right field. This one, he realizes where the ball is going to be, gets his hands down, he's quick to the ball, he hits it in that same swing plane he's been hitting all year and kind of hits the ball a little hard, muscles it to left center, and it's a home run. The amount of times... I've seen Bo Bichette. His swing doesn't change. Go watch Bo Bichette. His swing does not change. He knows, He sees where the ball is going to be. He has the same swing. And more often than not, it's just it's going to be sprayed around the ballpark. Kelnick has talked about this. And it's why it's really encouraging what he's done this year. And why it's not a fluke what he's, what he's done. Is the change of the mechanics and the approach. This quote is fantastic from him. Uh, I don't know when he said this. It was just, I think it was an interview after he had his first like two home runs on the year. Uh, he said, I'm swinging hard, but I think that, I think, I just think that where I'm catching the ball, I'm catching it in a consistent bat path, and that's what is really making it look effortless. 
And that's what you want in the swing. And it's very true. It's it's trusting your swing. And if the bat path is basically the same every swing and you eye up where that ball is going to be, you're going to hit the sweet spot more often. And that's what he's doing. It's the consistent bat path. It's the swinging hard through the zone. It's getting the hands around on pitches wherever they are in the zone. It's just really impressive. And it really did remind me of Bo Bichette. And you look at Kilnick's spray chart this year, it's all over the yard. We've seen it. He's taking balls the other way. He's pulling them when he can. And when he can't, he's putting a good swing on the ball and taking it the other way. Like, that is so impressive, so encouraging. And why he's not, this isn't necessarily a fluke. Like, I don't, again, I don't I don't think he's going to keep up this type of production all year. But the changes in the swing are evident. And I think the biggest change is that consistent bat path, like he said, like Kelnick said, He said consistent bat path, and it's where he's catching the ball. If you're catching the ball at the same spot more more often than not, you're going to be a successful hitter, especially just with the the raw talent and strength he has. Consistent bat path, consistent swing plane is how you win, and that's how he's winning. And it's really impressive, and it just reminded me of Bo Bichette. I love watching Bo Bichette hit because he'll just swing so hard, and we'll just take a ball completely the other way into the gap with ease. And go look at Boba Shett's, I tweeted it, but go look at Boba Shett's spray chart. This year, he started out the year like a 50% uh, oppo hitter, which is crazy and speaks to similar philosophies at the plate, I think, between him and Jared Kelnick. And we'll see if Kelnick can keep that up this year, and I think he can, honestly. I mean, he just looks looks great. Uh, so he has continued doing... What he's, what he's done the whole year, and that's rake. That is absolutely rake. Maybe I'll name this episode the Jared Kilnick episode number two, Electric Boogaloo or something, because the year has been the Jared Kelnick year so far. Unfortunately for Kelnick, the year can't be called the Jared Kelnick year because it's actually the year of Mike Ford. I don't know if any of you know or have seen the movement on Twitter. Some person who knows ball started this hashtag and was on the Mike Ford hype train to start the year. I don't know who it was. Maybe you should look it up at a certain Chaos Ball Twitter account, but uh, the year of Mike Ford is in full effect. I really, I really, he was raking in spring training and I really was, I was looking at it and I was like, you know, we need a backup first baseman. We needed someone who can hit in the DH spot. And I said, it's going to be Mike Ford's year because the DH spot might just de facto fall to him because of the other DHs they've decided to uh, put at the major league level. And Cooper Hummel is already in Tacoma. I'm fully expecting Tommy Lestella to be either in Tacoma or off the team completely very soon. And with that knowledge, Mike Ford has been raking. He's played 17 games this year for Tacoma, 72 plate appearances. He's hitting 333, 403, 698 with six home runs, 28 RBIs in 17 games, uh, seven walks, and 10 strikeouts. He had a three home run game the other night. I would safely assume we will be seeing him in Seattle. Well, maybe not in Seattle. Maybe he gets called up tomorrow to join him with the road on the road trip, going to Philadelphia. 
and then uh, Toronto. So maybe he, and then the A's actually after that. So I, th- I don't, I don't know if they'd call him up and make him travel to one of those immediately. So calling him up now, giving him the rest day tomorrow, the travel day with the team, I could totally see that happening, and I think it it might happen very soon because uh, he's kind of forcing their hand. DH has been awful. Mike Ford's been great. Hashtag the year of Mike Ford. I will continue doing that the whole year until he potentially flames out in the big leagues, but we'll see. We'll definitely get to see Mike Ford up with the team again. We saw it last year. It wasn't great. We saw him with the Angels last year. Also wasn't great, but what a scorching start to the year he's had. I think he saw my tweets, honestly. I think he saw my tweets and was like, you know what? I'm going to make him look so good, and I'm just going to have an all-star season in the major leagues this year. I'm going to validate this this random dude on the internet. I'm going to validate his opinion. But no, it's honestly really fun to watch him break. I mean, it, he's... I don't want to be insensitive about this, but he's... The, the Daniel Vogelbach build, I mean, he's just huge. He's just a large man. So if he can connect with the baseball, it, it can go pretty far. It's not that that happens a whole lot, but he's just so big. So I can totally see maybe him being better as the DH than the starting DHs this year so far. The bar could not be lower either. So this is best case for Mike Ford to step in and start socking dingers. You know what I mean? But that's it for the Mike Ford talk. We will monitor the situation accordingly as it's his year, and we know that is fact. Uh, But I don't have much else to say about the Mariners. Again, not pressing the panic button. This is roughly what I expected from this team so far to start the year, and I am intrigued uh, to see, again, what their record is come May after playing all these really good teams uh, in April. So we'll see. We'll see. But a divisional update here. Right now, as it stands, did MLB Reference not update their standings yet? They might not have because it says the Mariners are still 10-11. I think it takes B-Ref like a day to update that. Um, the Texas Rangers are in first place, 14-7. and They're playing great ball right now. They beat the shit out of the A's last night. Adoles Garcia had three home runs. They're they're raking. Uh, they're playing great baseball right now. And then the Astros are twelve and ten. They had a slow start, but are seven and three in their last ten and look again like the best team in the division. They look better than the Rangers, and we're not surprised by that. Uh, I guess they don't. Mm. No, the Rangers have looked really good. I just trust the Astros to be better long term, more like most people. But the Rangers, are no slouch to them, man. They are raking. Uh, the pitching's been better. But we'll see again as it, it gets into the the dog days of summer when guys need rest, injuries start happening more. But right now, they're winning games that they should, and they look really impressive up there at the plate. And then the Angels are in third place, 11-11. and They've looked fine. Unfortunately, though, it was just announced Logan O'Hoppy, their rookie catcher, uh, just tore his labrum and will be out four to six months. So the rest of the season, which really sucks, uh, he was having a great start to the year. Uh, honestly, a dark horse rookie of the year candidate because he actually looked like an Angels prospect that would be good and everyone was projecting to be good, which almost seemed too good to be true 
to go into the year. But he had a really good start to the season, and it just sucks for a young player to have uh, such a great start to the year, and then season ends, and you lose your rookie year. It just stinks for him, man. It just sucks. It, it I mean, it would have sucked even if he had a bad start to the year. It stings even more for Angels fans in that franchise that he was having a great start to the year. You had a look at what might be the catcher franchise catcher for the next decade for your team, and now he will not help the team at all the rest of the season, which sucks for him and sucks for the Angels, given that this is like the final countdown, man. This is like they they know Shohei's gone, they got to push all the chips in this year. They called up their top pro- one of their top prospects, Zach Neto, who they drafted last year. He had an amazing start in AA, and I imagine they trust that he's ready for big league ball. Had somewhat of a slow start, but they really do need a shortstop, and he's better than what they had, which is impressively, again, very bad team building by the Angels, which you could say every season. They're not great at building a team, but that's it. It didn't stink of desperation to call up Zach Neto there, but it just expressed further like they have to push their chips in this year. They have to push their chips in because they know this is likely 99% likelihood that Shohei's not on the team next year. So they really got to go for it. And then your Seattle Mariners are 10, 12 in fourth place. And then the Oakland A's, 4 and 18. Uh, one of the histor- a historically bad start to the season for the pitching staff of the Oakland A's. By the end of the year, they might go down as a historically bad, like top 10 worst pitching staff of all time. And when you can say historically bad in baseball, a game that has 140 years of history, 150 years of history, and if you can say historically bad in the year 2023, whew, that's really bad. That is so bad. I mean, they're 4 and 18. They have a negative 103 run differential. In 22 games, they've been outscored by 103 runs. The next worst team is Colorado. And just before I say it, think in your head what could this be? Negative 54, almost half of what the A's are right now. It's just impressively bad. I mean, they lost like 19-4 to last night to the Rangers. They're so bad. And the team just announced... They didn't announce the move, but the the team, like the ownership group or the team, bought a parcel of land in Las Vegas, which just basically cements what we've known for a long time, that the team will likely be leaving. A lot of implications of this, of course, it appears they wouldn't be expanding or they wouldn't be moving until like 2026 or 2027 or something which begs the question they'll still just play at the coliseum like will they announce the team's moving they're like hey we're we're moving the team to vegas in three years and so we're still going to play out the next three years at the coliseum i don't see that happening especially because the city of oakland would have to renew i think the coliseum's like uh, like mor- mortgage? Is it a mortgage on a stadium? I don't know. It's like up after this year. The city of Oakland, if the team announces they're going to move by the end of the year or by the end of next year, city of Oakland should not. They should just destroy the stadium. Like they shouldn't get to play out. They shouldn't get to announce the move and then play out a few years at, at Oakland. They should just have to 
go play, I guess, in the, the Aviators, the minor league stadium in Vegas, I guess. I don't know what they do. I talked about this a few pods ago, I think in the A's, the A's preview, but it just sucks, man. It sucks for city of Oakland. It sucks for A's fans, especially. It's just, and I'm worried A's fans staying on, and I'm sure they'll lose a lot of Oakland-based athletics fans, but anyone who hangs on and still roots for the team when they move to Vegas, and again, it's not a dumb deal, but I mean, writing's on the wall. Uh, the ownership will be the same. And that's what I worry about is once the money starts coming in just by virtue of being in a new city and Vegas looks like they support uh, sports teams pretty well, will the owner still be committed to try to win ball games? I don't think so. I think they, with the new move, I think they would need to change ownerships to have more hope than right now, which sucks. Because again, the only reason they're moving is because of money. It's because uh, the city of Oakland won't pay for a new stadium. The people, the fans, they won't pay for a new stadium. So they're like, okay, we'll move. That it, like that even is what happened when the A's moved to Oakland. The only reason they're in the Coliseum and part of the reason they moved to Oakland is because the stadium was already there. They didn't have to pay to build a new stadium. And in Vegas, they're not going to have to pay to build a new stadium either. They're going to apply and it's going to be taxes and all that they're not going to have to pay for a new stadium in vegas that is a huge reason why they're moving that's the only reason why they're moving it's money it's greed it's ownership not wanting to put a winning team on the field and it sucks it always sucks because the only people affected by this are the fans negatively affected by this are the fans the fans of every baseball team deserve an ownership group that wants to put a winning team on the field and unfortunately a lot of owners aren't like that but with the A's case, it's so bad. It's the worst in baseball situation. It stinks. And I'm not an A's fan, and they're a division rival, but when the A's were good, and I don't remember too far back, I'm not that old, uh, but I remember even like a decade ago when the A's were good, when they had Donaldson on the team and stuff, when the, the Coliseum was, quote, sold out, they never opened the top because they wouldn't sell that out. But, like, the lower bowls and all that, when there's a lot of fans at the stadium, they're raucous. Like, Oakland is a great sports city that has been absolutely screwed because ownership doesn't like that the city of Oakland and its people won't pay for their stadiums. And then they're like, oh, you don't come to the games. You don't support the team. It's like, yeah, of course you don't support the team. You give them no reason to. It just stinks. It stinks. It stinks. That was the big news that came out this week with the A's. And it's just... And they're historically bad on the field. If you're an A's fan listening to this, I know one in particular person who is an A's fan who listens to the show. My heart goes out for you. It stinks. It really does. And the idea of putting a baseball team in Vegas... A notably summer sport is hilarious to me. And just in the desert. Putting another team in the desert in a sport that plays most of its games uh, in the middle of summer. So it's just funny. It's funny to me. But that's it. I have nothing else to say. We're approaching time. But if you're listening this far, I appreciate you listening. The Mariners this week, they have an off day when this comes out on Monday the 24th. And then they're in Philadelphia then Toronto, then Oakland for a three-game set, and then they come back home. Uh, but I will be 
intrigued again to see how these Phillies and, and Blue Jays series go. I will be recording after the Blue Jays game next Sunday, and we'll see what the record is by then. But up until then, of course, again, thanks for listening. Rate and review. Do anything to support the show if you feel so inclined. You don't have to, but I appreciate it. And, of course, I will sign off with a Go Mariners!